Welcome to Naked Astronomy, a space science podcast from the Naked Scientists. This season, we're tackling the big questions from our very big universe. That means that each episode, I, Ben McAllister... And I, Adam Murphy, will take a look at one of the biggest cosmic questions in the world of space science and astronomy today. We'll break down the basics for you and then pull in an expert guest for a more in-depth chat. Last month, we were talking about aliens and what we can learn about them based on life on Earth. And we have a quick correction for ourselves. Yeah, that's right. Last episode, we said that this month we'd be talking to Michi Okaku and, well... We were very excited to speak to him, but due to uh, some scheduling, that interview has actually been pushed to next month, so that'll be the next episode. We're very sorry about the mix-up. We are, but it's something to look forward to. Well then, this month, what are we going to be talking about? This month, we're looking at something a little less exotic than alien life, but just as fascinating. In fact, it's fascinated humans for as long as we've been around. The sun. Yes, indeed, the sun. What is that big bright ball in the sky? What does it do all day? And what are its impacts here on Earth? We've got a special expert guest joining us a bit later to take us through some of the details. It is a problem and it just and it will cost millions of pounds. You, you get power outages, for example. There was an event in 1989 in Quebec in Canada and the whole of Quebec lost power for about nine hours and this cost millions of pounds. But before that... Let's have a bit of a primer. You might think you know what the sun is, that thing in the sky that my poor Irish skin is terrified of, but there's more to it than meets the eye. Not that you should let it meet your eye directly, of course. Feel free to get in touch with us along the way on Twitter, at Naked Astronomy or at Naked Scientists, or leave us a comment wherever you're listening. But without further ado, let's get into it. Unsurprisingly, given its almost always the brightest thing in the sky, people have been looking at the sun for as long as there have been people, and they've been observing it in a scientific-adjacent fashion for a very, very long time. Yeah, a really long time. People from various cultures have worshipped the sun, or they've seen it as a representation of the divine at different times throughout humanity's history. And before there were telescopes, ancient astronomers, pre-telescope astronomers, had even spent enough time studying the sun to know about the existence of what they call, what we now call sunspots, which are darker patches on the surface of the sun that were visible with the naked eye to careful observation. And that careful observation was often done. The ancient Babylonians of Hanging Gardens fame, they were aware of solar eclipses when the sun is obscured by the moon's shadow. And there's some evidence that they may have even predicted them using the numerical rules they had available to them. For a long time, people believed that the sun orbited the Earth. It was just another thing up there, like the moon, uh, this, this uh, theory where the, the Earth was the centre of the universe and everything kind of revolved around it. But, of course, we now know that that's not true. There's nothing particularly special about the place of the sun in the universe. The Earth orbits the sun, uh, and the sun orbits the centre of the galaxy. But that was, at one point, a controversial viewpoint. Uh, an astronomer named Giordano Bruno was actually executed, burnt at the stake for publicly stating his belief that the Earth was not the centre of the universe, that the sun was, well, if not the centre of the universe, at least the centre of the Earth's orbit. And at least now we don't burn people at the stake for that kind of thing. And with the advent of the telescope and modern astronomy, we began to understand the sun a lot better. And what we learned is that there isn't actually all that much special about it. It's the same as all the other twinkling lights in the sky. 
And even then it's not that much bigger, it's sort of middling in size, middling in temperature. Kind of a bog standard star, it's just, it's the one that's closest to us. So, hard facts and figures about the sun, some stats for you. First thing we need to know, it's about 4.6 billion years old. It's a similar age to the Earth, indicating that the solar system formed at a pretty similar time in the universe's history. And, if we want to talk more facts and figures, it has a diameter, so from one side across to the other, of 1.4 million kilometres. And, just because that number is ridiculous and you want to get an idea of scale, the Earth's diameter is only 12 thousand kilometers so it is that much bigger than we are the mass of the sun is a number two with 30 zeros after it in kilograms which again to to give you uh, some kind of context there is about a million times as as massive as the earth is which is just absurd and it is 150 million kilometers away so you could fit about a hundred of the diameter of the sun between the sun and the earth so it's you know, pretty far away. It is also pretty hot. The surface temperature of the sun can get to 5,500 degrees Celsius. It gets, you know, nearly that hot down here in Australia sometimes. Yeah, nearly that hot. But as well as that, it's also got strong magnetic fields around it. The fields at the surface can reach about 0.4 Tesla, which doesn't sound like much, but it's about the same as a junkyard car magnet, which can toss cars around. And when you think that the average magnet just goes on your fridge, it, it is a big magnetic field. So we've, we've heard it's about 4.6 billion years old, but where did it come from? How did it form? What does it do all day? Well, the sun formed when a bunch of gas from somewhere else in the universe, started to clump together due to gravity. You had this pocket of overdense gas that started pulling inwards and pulling inwards, and as it came closer and closer together, it had to lose uh, gravitational potential energy, like a ball falling from the upper atmosphere on the Earth, falling down towards the Earth. It's, you know, losing potential energy, and it's becoming another kind of energy. In the case of the ball falling towards the Earth, it's becoming kinetic energy. The uh, gravitational potential energy that the gas is losing is being radiated away, and the gas is getting hotter and hotter and hotter and denser and denser. And hotter and hotter and denser and denser until eventually the pressure and the temperature become so high that something amazing happens. And that is nuclear fusion. So what is nuclear fusion? It's kind of a buzzword. Uh, we can describe it like this. In, in the early universe, after the Big Bang, or a short time after the Big Bang, comparatively to the age of the universe, the only stuff that there really was was hydrogen and a bit of helium and a very small amount of heavier elements. Hydrogen is a very, very simple element. It's a single proton. If it's in its atomic form, it's with a single electron around it, or if it's an ion, it's just, just a single proton. So very, very small. And if you get it dense enough, under high enough pressure and high enough temperature, a bunch of hydrogen, those hydrogen particles, those single protons, will actually fuse together to create bigger elements like helium and, and other things in those very, very, uh, very high density, high pressure, high temperature conditions. The key thing there is that when these two hydrogens have fused together to create helium and all that other stuff under this high temperature and pressure, the mass of the resultant helium is just a teeny, teeny, very tiny bit less than the mass of the initial stuff that went into it. But how does that change in mass mean that you get energy out the other end? Well, you've probably heard of Einstein's famous E equals mc squared equation, which teaches us that mass is really just another form of energy. 
So when that little bit of mass goes missing, as the hydrogen smushes together to create helium, it hasn't actually gone missing at all. It's just converted into a different form of energy, and it's sprayed out in the form of light, sunlight. Exactly, and all that light, all that sunlight, is just a missing mass from the elements fusing together and getting beamed away from the sun. So, what impact does the sun have on Earth? Might seem like a bit of a silly question, but simple answer, provides all of the light and heat. For one, you know, we, we wouldn't have any light to see by on Earth, or a very, very small amount from distant stars if it wasn't for the sun, and it would be very, very cold. We'd be rocketing through the void of space, just like all of the uh, comets and stuff that fly out there that aren't bound to a star. Of course, sometimes too much light gets in and all that light gets trapped in the atmosphere of the planet and you end up with a greenhouse effect that's contributing heavily to global warming, but we're not going to dwell too much on those negative things. This is a show just about the sun itself. Another awesome thing that the sun does for us is provide energy to plants, which can then take that energy and undergo photosynthesis, where plants consume photons of light from the sun and create sugars that we and other animals can consume for energy. They're basically eating sunlight and turning it into other stuff. It's quite incredible. I love that eating sunlight, but there's, there's one other effect as well that it does, and because of its gravity... It keeps us orbiting around, and it keeps us orbiting the centre of the galaxy around the sun, which is nice, because otherwise we'd just be a cold ball of ice going through the empty void of space all alone. But the sun isn't just a glowing ball of plasma, which gives us light, heat and energy, and keeps us in our place in the universe. It can also exhibit a lot of scarier, more explosive, and potentially dangerous phenomena. Very dangerous. You may have heard of solar storms. Well, they are real and they can wreak real havoc here on Earth. We spoke to a solar meteorologist, Stephanie Yardley, to hear all about these storms and what we can do to predict them. But to get started with, she told us more about the sun itself. Well, it wouldn't be a very nice environment. Like, you, <laughs> like you've just said, we wouldn't be able to survive it. We've designed some spacecraft recently that are going very close to the sun, so within inside the orbit of Mercury, Solar Orbiter, for example, and they've had to be designed with heat shields and various materials, and it's been really difficult to design these kind of instruments just because of how hot and unfriendly the sun is. Uh, I think that sums it up, hot and unfriendly. Yeah, right. I mean, how, how hot are we talking? So we're talking millions of degrees, right? So the sun's surface is thousands of degrees, but it actually gets hotter as you move away from the surface. So we're talking about even 10 million degrees, something you would not want to be close to at all. Absolutely not. How does that work? That, seem, that seems counterintuitive that it's hotter as you go further away from it. How, how does that work? This is one of the long outstanding problems of solar physics. It's been around for decades and we're not entirely sure. It's one of the big problems. It shouldn't work that way. Like when you move away from a radiator, for example, you get cooler. But if you move from the sun's surface outwards, then it actually gets hotter. So there must be some sort of heating mechanism that's at work here. And we've narrowed it down to there's two camps, essentially, that argue against each other in the community. So you have things like the magnetic field is responsible. So the magnetic field of the sun is responsible for so much like solar storms and space weather. But it's also could be responsible for heating the sun. So breaking and joining of the magnetic field and releasing energy could essentially heat the sun's atmosphere but then you also have waves so the propagations of waves through the atmosphere as well could produce heating this is something that we still work on today and is very much a hot topic 
do you have a camp or are you keen to just watch the scientific gang war from the sidelines? Yeah, I just watch from the sidelines. I mean, it could be a combination of both, which is probably most likely. We don't know. The science doesn't add up at the moment. The numbers don't add up. So we need to go back and continue working on this. Right. And it's not just the high temperature. As you were saying, there's also a very, very high magnetic field, which could also be pretty unpleasant, I suppose, and certainly damaging for spacecraft. The sun is very active. Well, depending upon where it is in its cycle. So the sun has a 11 year solar cycle and it's all dependent upon these magnetic fields. And when we're nearer a maximum of the cycle, we get a lot of activity due to these really strong magnetic fields, such as coronal mass ejections. So these are eruptions that come from the sun. We get highly charged particles. We get just the expansion of the sun itself, which is known as the solar wind. This is constantly hitting us. If we didn't have our own shield of the Earth's magnetic field, we would be in trouble. So it is a very hostile star. (laughs) hostile it's a nice way to describe it so you've 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 hit on a few things there that might partially answer this question but yeah i guess can you tell us just generally what does the sun do all day and all night while we're not looking at it i haven't looked today but it's probably quite quiet because we're at a lull in the solar cycle so we're near the minimum so we go through minimums and maximums and it's either i guess quiet or stormy conditions you'd you'd call it we have sunspots on the surface and this is where a lot of the activity comes from this is regions of really strong concentrated magnetic field and they appear dark on the surface so you can look at them through telescopes or using glasses so you can look at the sun these can produce eruptions or these highly energetic particles that cause all sorts of effects on Earth. But currently, I think it's pretty, unfortunately for us, it's pretty quiet at the moment because we are during this law. And what could we expect to happen? Like what would be different if it was in the the peak of that activity? So you do get a lot more eruptions. So the statistics say it's probably about 0.5 a day right now. But then say in solar maximum, we have maybe six per day. It, It just depends. So because we have more of these regions on the surface with these strong magnetic fields you get a lot of breaking and releasing of the energy you just get generally a lot more of these eruptions and any kind of eruptive phenomena from the sun so these are the kind of busy times I guess but that doesn't mean we don't get events occurring right now I think there was one in the last either yesterday or the last couple of days that will potentially be headed towards earth You've mentioned there are a couple of different things. You mentioned solar storms a few times. You mentioned sunspots a moment ago. I want to jump into solar storms in a minute, but yeah, I've heard these terms. You hear things like solar flare, sunspot, solar storm. Are those all the same thing? Are they different things? What, what, what's the difference there? We have so many names for so many different things. As physicists, we like to categorise things. We get caught up in this terminology. So sunspots are these dark patches that you see on the surface of the sun. And this is just an indicator that you've got some really strong magnetic fields there. And this is where most of the activity comes from, such as solar eruptions, for example. Solar storms is just kind of a broad term which incorporates all these kind of eruptive phenomena that come from the sun. So there's there's generally three different types. We have the solar flares, which are really intense bright light from the sun, which you see, and this is because of the magnetic field changing and releasing a lot of energy. And these occur very quickly. So you see these brightenings probably up to an hour or a couple of hours, but they they onset very quickly. The eruptions or 
we call them the technical term coronal mass ejections. These are these huge bubbles of magnetic field and particles that essentially race towards us at thousands of kilometers per second and can hit us here at Earth. And then you have these solar energetic particles. These are high energy particles that come from the sun and they can reach us even quicker. So eruptions actually take maybe even three to five days. I think the quickest one was 17 hours to reach the Earth, whereas energetic particles take minutes, maybe 10, 20 minutes to reach us. So we've got all these different types of solar hazards, essentially, that can affect us here. And that's not even talking about the constant stream that we get from the sun. This is the solar wind. So the sun doesn't just stop in space. We have this expansion of the sun and that those particles hitting us and hitting us now also can cause things like the aurora and damage to our satellites as well. All right, so let me let me see if I've understood this. So there's always a solar wind, particles coming from the sun. Then you've got this bucket term solar storms, which contains things like coronal mass ejections and solar flares and streams of high energy particles. And so that's kind of like those are all different kinds of solar storm. And then a sunspot is just like a region on the sun where those kinds of events are more likely to occur. Wow, perfect. <laughs> great, great. I, I can just leave now, right? <laughs> yeah, well, well, there you go. Thank you very much. This has been our show. <laughs> thanks for coming on. Yeah, okay, great. That's that's really uh thanks for thanks for clearing that up. One of the things I love is when you're like a bot if you talk to a botanist, the sun is this gentle, wonderful life giver that feeds all our plants. And then when you talk to an astrophysicist, it's damaging fireball in the sky, be afraid. Yeah, I th- it's also, and if you go to the other end and you talk to astronomers or astrophysicists, they'll be like, oh, the sun's really boring. It's magnetic fields really busy. We don't really care about it. But Yeah, it's not like a magnetar or something. So what do we care? <laughs> exactly. Uh, whereas I'm like, well, you study stars right out in the universe that, you know, what kind of effect do they have on us on a day-to-day basis where our sun is our closest star. It's the one that we can study in the most detail. So we can send these satellites up there. We can have these ground-based telescopes and look at the surface in beautiful detail, particularly with some of the new telescopes that we've got recently. And it affects us on a daily basis. It sends us these lovely solar storms that we thankfully are protected by our Earth's magnetic field, although it still obviously causes problems here on the ground. And that's another reason why we want to try and predict these events. Yeah, can you say a bit more about that? You're, you're jumping right into it. Why, why do we, why are we interested in studying these solar storms and energetic solar events at all? Most people will be aware of the aurora, and this is these are kind of like the the nice consequences, I guess, the pretty consequences of these solar storms. So when they're headed towards Earth and they interact with the Earth's atmosphere, then you get the lovely aurora. And if you're lucky enough to see these, it's a great experience. But also it can damage uh, satellites and also any form of electronics. It can affect the national grid, anything that relies on power, essentially. And so we really want to try and predict these events so we can act so we can try and protect some of our infrastructure but this is really difficult to do because like weather prediction well I think space weather prediction is probably further behind than weather prediction at the moment most of our efforts are focused on 
we see an eruption coming from the sun and then we we model it and how it propagates towards us and then hope that our model is right and yeah a lot of the time we we don't get it right because there has to be certain conditions of this eruption they don't always affect us sometimes they just pass over us and this is all dependent upon the magnetic field we can probably predict their arrival time within about 12 hours but someone say from the national grid will want three to five days warning we're quite far away from being able to provide this at the moment and that's just the national grid there are, there are people that use radio communications or global positioning systems stuff like that it really affects our communications we're in trouble when one of these events happens and we rely on something, say, in a natural disaster and we're relying on radio communications, for example, and they just stop and they cut out, then it is a problem and it just and it will cost millions of pounds. You get power outages, for example. There was an event in 1989 in Quebec in Canada and the whole of Quebec lost power for about nine hours and this cost millions of pounds. And you can cause permanent damage as well to the transformers, which take months, years to fix. What's actually going on? What connects the sun having a moment to messing up the national grid? <laughs> I can't describe the sun. Yeah, having, wow. Sun having a tantrum, the sun having a moment. <laughs> For example, if I take the eruptions, it's it's these huge bubbles of, of plasma and magnetic field that race towards us. And they hit the Earth, or they hit the Earth's magnetic field and it interacts with the Earth's magnetic field. So then you're essentially getting high energy particles in the Earth's atmosphere, which is one effect. And that obviously causes the aurora as well. And then also what happens because of these electric currents, you basically affect the magnetic field at the surface as well. And these induce currents. So you're essentially inducing currents, which then obviously play havoc with the national grid, for example, or anything that relies on power, essentially. So one of the biggest events that you'll hear thrown around a lot, say the Carrington event in 1859, technology wasn't what it is today at all. For example, they had the telegraph operators were getting shots from their telegraphs and they were operating Whoa. by themselves. Yeah, just because of these currents that were being induced. That's powerful. Yeah. So and that that was a that's kind of our we use it as our worst case scenario. That was a particularly strong event. The eruption actually arrived in 17 hours, so it was really, really fast. Would it be fair to say that it's kind of like a, an electromagnetic pulse the, that uh, sci-fi uh, and or real thing that people talk about as a way to sort of disable communication systems? Yeah, I guess you can essentially call it that. It's annoying that we can't say for certain when this is going to occur or we, we watch the sun and we and we see an, an event occur and then we're thinking, okay, well, we'll model this and, and see what happens. Mm. And a lot of the time we get false alarms because of it. And this is also a problem, right? So if we issue an alert and a lot, for an example, with the energetic particles, we are worried about radiation. So when you are flying in an air, air Plane, no matter whether it's just a commercial flight or particularly space flight when you're higher up, then you're worried about the radiation doses you will receive. So having an alert sent out saying we think there's going to be a radiation storm because there's an event that's occurred at the sun and then it not happening, 
you everyone obviously reacts to that so for example airlines might fly, fly at a lower altitude or avoid polar routes so that you don't get an increased dose of radiation but then that costs money because it, mm. because it costs them in terms of fuel to fly at a lower altitude but then that was a waste then so if we keep sending out false alerts then the aviation industry is not going to be very happy with us so then Going back to like the prediction thing, what 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 are we actually doing at the moment in terms of getting to the point where we can predict them? What's the current research look like? So at the moment, as I've said, we we sit and stare at the sun, we sit and watch the sun. We have satellites up there that look at say the eruptions that are coming, and then we can model them. And so one of the things is to improve our understanding of these regions. And that's what I'm interested in. So looking at these sunspot regions and figuring out what kind of regions produce these these eruptions or energetic particles. So what kind of properties that we can then feed into these models and then improve the prediction? Because a lot of these models are based on the observations that we have. If you can figure out what parameters or what properties of these regions that are most important for these events, then you can better inform the models. And then obviously you can also work on the models and improve the models themselves because computing time is expensive. And obviously we're doing this in real time. We're trying to forecast as as quickly as we possibly can. And so the models won't have all the physics in them. We can't do that. It would, they would take months or years to run. We wouldn't be able to run them. There are two paths really. You have the actual science, like what I'm doing, looking at these regions and trying to figure out, you know, why these particular regions are productive. Or you have the space weather side, which is actual looking at the models and the end users and looking at what they want out of these models, like what what information and what warnings they want. So there's there's two streams really, the research side and then the space weather prediction side, and they do link together as well. Fair enough. Would it be fair to say that your research on the on the prediction side is then centered around looking at these sunspots, the regions where these things happen and try and figure out like is it kind of like data science to some extent, like looking at past data and saying like, oh, ones that have been this shaped and this size or whatever had these kind of events and then using that to predict future events? Yeah, that's precisely it. So we can look at the magnetic field imprints of the sunspots, essentially. So we're looking at the magnetic field on the surface. And I look at this data and say, what are the size of these regions? How complex are they? You know, what what kind of structures we see. You look at various properties of these sunspots over various days leading up to eruptions and then try and see what was different about these regions compared to regions that don't produce these eruptions. And this is what a lot of the community is looking at at the moment, what properties we can get from the data to then yeah, inform these models and to inform these predictions. One of the problems that we have is this is only looking at the magnetic field on the surface. What we'd ideally like to do is look at the magnetic field throughout the atmosphere. And these measurements are really difficult to make. And so we don't have these routine measurements. And we think that actually maybe if you had the surface magnetic field along with what's going on throughout the atmosphere, this might actually help us. And this is one of what one of the new uh, telescopes that has recently been built actually looks at the um, magnetic field in the in the corona. And this is where models come in as well. We can also use models to model 
the outer atmosphere's magnetic field. But again, these aren't going to be exactly spot on. They give us a, a general idea. And also you then struggle with computing time again. These models aren't necessarily very fast. So, yeah, it's trying to figure out what information is needed. And with the, like you're saying about data science, we have, we can use all these methods that are coming up elsewhere. So a hot topic right now is things like machine learning and artificial intelligence and going back through all the data sets and trying to do a statistical survey of what regions were, you know, producing these eruptions and the, this kind of phenomena and which regions weren't and training their models on the data sets. I was just, just wondering, would it be kind of an analogy to normal weather? Would it be fair to say that kind of where it is at the moment, it would be like as if we saw a storm on the planet and then after it happened, we'd be able to say, well, our storm predicted that, that well, our model predicted that's what that storm would have done. So we're right. And maybe we'll be able to predict it in the future. Yeah, that's, that's, that sounds about, about right. And there are so many different communities across the world using different models and producing different predictions. We have it with the solar cycle as well, looking at how this is a big one as well, how strong the next solar cycle is going to be. So you have a prediction panel that comes together and they predict how active the sun's going to going to be. So the, the solar cycle is measured by looking at the number of sunspots over the 11-year cycle. And so you have these various predictions that people argue about, no, we're going to have a very quiet cycle. Actually, it's going to be very active. And they, and again, because they're based upon models and we don't know everything about the sun, then obviously they can be right or wrong. So there's a lot of arguments about what the sun's going to do in the, the future. And do you think we'll ever reach the point where, you know, we'll be able to say, on the weather forecast you know cloudy with a chance of solar flares <laughs> well people people already make these forecasts we already like we like i've said the kind of forecast we have is like there's 50 50 chance there'll be this solar flare today like this level of activity so we already have that kind of prediction it's just that whether we get it right or not is another matter <laughs> That's it for this month's episode of Naked Astronomy. We hope you enjoyed it and maybe learned something. You know, it is nice to understand the sun a little bit better. And as a bonus, you can't get burnt at the stake for it these days. Or sunburnt if you're sitting inside listening to your wonderful podcasts. If you enjoyed yourself, please get in touch with us on social media at Naked Astronomy or at The Naked Scientists. Throw us a subscribe or leave us a rating, review, comment or like wherever you're listening. You can also get in touch with us by sending jets of high energy particles directly from the surface of the nearest star. Next month, we promise, we'll actually be chatting about a grand unified theory of everything with physicist Michio Kaku. We absolutely promise this time. And if you think you've got a big cosmic question that you'd like to see us cover, send it our way. You can get me at benm at nakedscientist.com or at McAllister on Twitter. Or me at adam at nakedscientists.com or at regbentley on Twitter. Thanks again for listening. I'm Ben McAllister. I'm Adam Murphy. And keep watching the skies. <laughs>